the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast, and I'm Chris Schroeder, pastor of North Shore Vineyard. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our Sunday service on August 29th, and this is part three of a series that we've been doing in recent weeks called Prayer. The title of this message is Together, and we're looking at how prayer should arise from the context of togetherness and and relationship. So this is as much about the context of prayer as it is about actual prayer itself, but I hope you'll find this helpful. So let's head to the talk. Don't forget to check us out online for resources, devotionals, and of course audio of our weekend podcast at northshorevineyard.org. Off to the talk. One of my favorite authors in recent years is a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. Anybody read any Malcolm Gladwell in here? Okay, one person. I'm glad to see that. This, this will be a fresh illustration. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he writes books that are interesting takes on social phenomenon and stuff. So he, he wrote a book years ago called The Tipping Point, and recently he wrote a book called Outliers. And in the first, uh, in the introductory chapter of Outliers, he talks about a, a little town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Anybody heard of Rosetto, Pennsylvania before? Of course not. You probably wouldn't. It's, it's a town of about 2,000 people, at least back in the 1950s when he, he's writing about it. It, it, was, it was a small town. And it was pretty much cut off from everything else going on. At that time, it, it had been settled in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s by Italian immigrants who came from a town called Rosetto, Italy, and they decided, hey, we like our home so much, we're going to name this little place in Pennsylvania Rosetto. And because they were very ethnically just pretty much from that one community, they, they kind of stayed very much as that one community, as many ethnic communities around Pennsylvania did at that time. So that, you know, you had pockets of Germans and Irish. And so Rosetto just kind of existed unto itself and really didn't mess with anybody else. Nobody knew much of what was going on. Well, there was a a physician by the name of uh, Stuart Wolfe, who in the 50s, he would spend his summers not far from Rosetto, Pennsylvania, and he would actually practice medicine there. He was a physician who specialized in stomach issues, and one day he was invited to speak at a medical conference of, of physicians in the area, and he got to talking with a guy afterwards. He said, you know, each summer when I come over here, I see patients from all over the region, but I never see any patients from Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And the other guy started saying, well, you know what? I, I don't see many either. What's, what's the deal with Rosetto? So they, they decided they'd go take a trip to Rosetto and, and, and kind of do some studies on it, you know, figure out what was wrong. Well, what they found, Rosetto, Pennsylvania, in the late 50s, they actually had a rate of heart disease that was lower than anywhere else in the United States. In fact, no one under the age of 65 in Rosetta had heart disease. That was a puzzling thing to them. They, they noticed that no one in Rosetta, Pennsylvania, had peptic ulcers. Actually, they noticed that, that the sickness and disease rates for Rosetta were 30% lower than everywhere else in the United States. It, not, it, wasn't, it wasn't even only disease, it was emotional issues too, like suicide. 
There was no suicide rate. The crime rate was virtually dead. So they were like, what is going on here in Rosetto, Pennsylvania? And so they started where many doctors would. What are they eating? <laughs> What's in their diet? What, what are they eating or drinking? So they, they thought maybe they have brought over some kind of hybrid Mediterranean diet from the homeland, and they, just, they must eat a lot of olive oil or garlic or, or something. Well, what they found kind of surprised them. Rosetto, the, the, the residents of Rosetto, Pennsylvania, were not like their ancestors in Italy. Instead of cooking with olive oil, they cooked with lard. In fact, 41% of the calories that they consumed, the average person in Rosetto, came from fat. <laughs> High-fat diet uh, that, you know, just not healthy. Unlike their ancestors who would eat pizzas with lots of fresh vegetables on them, People in Rosetta ate thick crust pizzas with lots of ham and salami and sausage, you know, high-fat stuff. So very quickly they ruled out it's not the diet. (laughs) It must be something else. So they thought maybe they exercise a lot. Well, they realized pretty quickly that the folks of Rosetta, Pennsylvania, were not involved in yoga classes. (laughs) They, They didn't ride their bikes much. The only work they got usually was their jobs. In fact... A good chunk of the population smoked cigarettes, and, and a large population of them were obese. So they realized, okay, we'll check diet, exercise off the list. Then they turned to genetics. They thought, maybe, maybe these are just some hardy people. They just come from a, a hardy line of folks that just don't get sick. So they tracked down some folks from Rosetto who had moved to other places in the United States at that time, and they thought, well, if we study these other people, maybe we'll find that they're just as resistant to heart attack and other diseases. Well, what they found was folks living outside of Rosetto that were from Rosetto, Italy, they were pretty much like everybody else in the United States. They got sick at the same rate. They, you know, everything was normal. So then they, they realized there must be something special about the town itself. Well, that's exactly what happened. They, they ended up inviting in some sociologists and some folks that would actually study the culture for a while. And what they found in Rosetta was a, an oddity, even at the late 50s, you know, when, when people were a little bit more connected than, than they happened to be in, in this day and age. They found that the folks in Rosetta, many times you would have three generations living under one roof. That was common. And they would share meals together. Walking down the street, people would engage each other in conversations in their, their dialect of, of Italian from, from the old world. They would find that, that folks were very involved in civic activities. There was, in fact, for a town of 2,000, there were 20 civic organizations. These people were very involved in their church, very involved in one another's lives. See, the, the thing that, that stunned, and this was really groundbreaking at that time, because up, up to that point, Doctors pretty much thought if you had a disease, it was strictly a physical issue. This became groundbreaking because they realized that the quality of relationships in your life actually affects your physical health. You know, several years ago, I ended up coming on staff at the Vineyard Church at Kenner. I had made the comment to my wife about a month before, we were sitting at a restaurant over in Hammond, Louisiana, where we were living, and made the comment to my wife that I would never go on staff at a church. And I followed it up with, I would never live in the New Orleans area. A month later, I was on staff at a church in the New Orleans area. And uh, 
The reason I didn't want to go on staff at a church is because I'd had plenty of bad experiences with church. I, I really, I love God. I like God. Church, though, man, it, it was just, I had had a lot of issues with pastors and other people in church. And I was just like, I could, I could just do without all that. I would, I would do a lot better if it was just me and God. But yet we really felt... When the Kinder Vineyard, they, they were in a, in a time of really growing like crazy, and they asked me if I could come lead worship there and on staff, and, and we really felt like that's where God was leading us. So I, I took the job, and everything went swimmingly for the first, is that, is that a term? Uh, for the first uh, few months, the honeymoon phase, it was great. I loved the church. It was, I, I was like, I never thought that I'd be a part of a church that I actually liked, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. But understand, when I came in, they were doing five weekend services. And so I kind of hit the ground running. By the end of that year, they got up to seven weekend services. And I led worship at all of them. I, nobody told me I could actually take a couple of weekends off a year that first year. So I get to the end of the first year, and I've led the equivalent of what most vineyard worship leaders would lead in seven years. Uh, I, I was just like going like crazy. And so as, as I got near the end of that first year, it took me no time to be burned out. I was just like, I don't like leading worship anymore. <laughs> uh, this is hard. And not only that, I, I was beginning to have heartburn, like, like chronic heartburn. Like I went to see my doctor, and I just turned 30, and my doctor's like, he, he prescribed me some Nexium, but he's like, you don't need to be taking Nexium at 30 years old. That's crazy. You know, wh- what's going on? I was like, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, didn't seem like anything crazy. I'm, I was just pretty out of touch with things, I guess. Um, but over the next few months, I began to notice that there, not only was I feeling very stressed out and burned out, but I was also found that my relationship with my pastor, who was also my boss, uh, was getting pretty strained. Communication was kind of broken down and, and things weren't feeling good. And it was starting to confirm in me all the suspicions I'd had all along that, you know, I could never have a good relationship with another pastor again because they're always just going to, you know, hurt you or whatever. And so things began to get worse over the next few months. But an interesting thing happened in that the, 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 after I'd been there for about a year, the following, you know, during the spring, I, I ended up taking two, two trips, one to Colorado for a retreat and then one to my dad's house in Texas. And on both trips, I forgot to bring my Nexium with me. And when I went to Colorado, I had no heartburn. I had no Nexium. I thought, oh, well, it's probably the altitude or maybe they don't eat spicy enough food up in, in Colorado. It's just, it's something like that. Sure enough, when I return, the heartburn returns, so I get back on Nexium. Well, a few months later, I go to Texas to my dad's house to, to visit, and again, I forgot to bring my Nexium with me. But this time, I knew it wasn't diet because when I'm at my dad's house, we're like eating tamales with chili for breakfast and brisket for lunch and fried catfish for dinner. It was like anything that could cause heartburn, we were eating it in large amounts, grossly large amounts. But, uh, uh, the reality is that week I didn't have any heartburn. I actually kind of thought I was cured. Then I get back to Kenner and I've got heartburn again. And it was, it was the kind of bad kind of heartburn. Like I could eat saltine crackers and Sprite and I'd have heartburn. It was like anything would give it to me. Well, during this time I remember sending, well, I didn't really send them. You ever write emails that you don't send? That's probably a good habit to get into. <laughs> 
How many of y'all write emails that you send that you wish you had never sent? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, that's another issue. I, I tend to, to fall on the, uh, the first one, though. But I, I'd written, written some emails to my pastor, and I never sent them. A couple of months would go by. The feelings would kind of, you know, kind of writing my feelings made me feel better. It kind of got some of that stuff out. And then, you know, about a month later, I'd start having all these feelings again. And I'm like, uh, and I was just afraid to talk to him. Because, you know, when your pastor is actually your boss, that's a weird thing. Because there's things that you might tell your pastor, but when your pastor's like paying your check, you know, you kind of think, if I share some of this stuff, am I going to get fired? (laughs) And so I was kind of having some some fears there of job security. I actually even wrote a letter, and I never sent that. So finally, finally summer comes, and and I'm I'm just a mess. And one day, my pastor, my boss, called me up, said, uh, we need to have a meeting, and I knew, I knew it was time for me to finally just let him know what was going on, let him know all that I was feeling, um, and so I went there, and on my way there, I got out my phone, and I called Dina up, I said, Dina, I guess I'll be looking for a new job tomorrow, and I really meant it, I did not, I did not think there would be any other possibility, I thought, I'm going to tell him, and he's going to do what every other pastor I've known would do, and say, if you don't like it, you can leave, or just get in line, <laughs> and, and submit, and that's the only, I mean, really, there was no other option on my radar. Well, that day I kind of opened up and I said, I- I'm just miserable. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this worship leading stuff anymore. I'm not happy. Now, understand my attitude. I wasn't coming there accusing him. I think things probably would have gone different. But I was admitting what I was struggling with, why I wasn't happy in the job anymore, why I couldn't take it anymore. And I prepared myself after I got everything out on the table. I prepared myself for what I thought was going to be. If you don't like it, you can leave. And instead, I got a completely different answer. Instead, he's like, you know, we just need to start over. He's like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We, we, let's just wipe the slate clean. Let's try this again. For the first time, really, in my whole time as a Christian, I felt like it's the first time I had a pastor actually hear me out and not beat me up, which has anybody ever been beat up by a pastor before? Not physically. Uh, that, we'll, we'll pray for you if you've been beat up physically. <laughs> I was just floored, though. I mean, my jaw, like, almost dropped I, because I was so prepared for another answer. That was a huge turning point in our relationship. Not only that, it was a huge turning point in my life. God began to heal some wounds that I've been carrying. For, I had pastor wounds that I've been carrying around for a long time. And God began to touch on those in that relationship. What was interesting is that following week, I stopped taking my Nexium, And I was completely healed of my heartburn. I mean, I've never gone back. I mean, yeah, yeah, certainly I've, I've eaten the wrong thing a few times and had to take some Tums. But I haven't had chronic heartburn. I share these first two stories, Rosetto and my own little case of heartburn at age 30, to just say that our physical beings, you know, we, we tend to, to put things in boxes so many times, don't we? If you have a physical problem, you go to the doctor. If you have an emotional problem, you go see a therapist. If you have a spiritual problem, you show up at church. 
But understand that, that these things are very much connected in our lives. That's the way God, God didn't make us into little compartmentalized creatures. He's made us very much connected. Our emotions, our spirit, our mind, our body. That's the way God's created us. And, and so many times there's a connection. Now, I'm not, before I go on, I don't want to say that every physical problem you have in your life is the result of some kind of thing. Sometimes you just get sick. Sometimes you just have a problem, okay? Understand me? But I think more times than not, we don't realize that there are connections. What we can see, even in the Bible, and I put this in your outline, a a couple of things. I'm not going to read the passages. I'll just tell you the stories very quickly. But we see... Oftentimes, even the very miracles of Jesus, we tend to look at them as purely physical miracles. But really, you've got to understand, when you look at these miracles, and I, just, I put three of them on here, you can find many more in the New Testament, that when Jesus healed somebody, it wasn't just physical. For instance, in Luke 5, 12, 5, 12 through 16, Jesus heals a leper. This is a beautiful story. You've got to understand, as a leper... Not only would you have a physical ailment that would not be fun, <laughs> you, you would feel bad all the time, you, you, you'd be infected, you'd, just a horrible disease, but you would be isolated from community. It, once, you, once you got leprosy, you know what they would do to you? They'd kick you out of town. You're on your own. Hopefully you had some family members that might bring something to you, but that was the end of your contact with anybody else. You could maybe hang out with lepers, but you wouldn't hang out with anybody else. That means you couldn't go to the temple to worship. That means you couldn't participate in Thanksgiving or Christmas or anything like that. You were cut off from society. Jesus comes up to a leper one day. This leper said, if you're willing, can you, can you heal me? And Jesus said, I am willing. You know what he does? He goes up and grabs his hand. He touches him. That's a big deal. Because you know what? Not only did he heal the leper, he, can, he, he, he showed the leper something about God, that God wasn't afraid to touch him. Though every other man was afraid to touch him, Jesus comes up and grabs him. He said, you're healed. Be cleansed. And he said, don't tell anybody. And this guy just went crazy. He was so excited. He went and ran and told everybody about Jesus. And, and, the, and the next chapter, we see that Jesus can't even go anywhere without a crowd around him. I think that's a beautiful picture of Jesus that, you know, Jesus could have just seen him from across the way and said, okay, be healed. (laughs) But Jesus comes up and touches him, gets in his world, heals him. He restores him, though, to community. See, understand, he didn't just heal him of his leprosy. This man, for the first time, now he can go back and hug his own children, if he had any. He can hug his wife. He can walk around freely. He can worship in the temple. He's restored to God and to people. It wasn't just physical. A couple of chapters later in Luke, we see Luke 8, 26 through 39. A demon-possessed man. This is a guy that, you know, likely kids would have told, you know, scary stories about when they're staying over at each other's houses with flashlights if they had flashlights back then. This guy was nuts. He was hanging out in the graveyard naked, you know, with stones. And he's just like crazy. Jesus sets him free from multiple spirits that were tormenting him. When Jesus sets him free, it wasn't just freedom from these spirits. He was restored 
back to community. A little bit later in Luke 8, Luke 8, 40, there's a woman who had suffered with bleeding for 12 years. She'd had this hemorrhage that, that nobody could cure. And understand, in that culture at that time, that would have made you ceremonially unclean. It's not just like you got a bad issue. It's like you can't do anything religious. You can't come to church. You can't hang out with people. You are a cast off just like the leper. When she gets healed by Jesus, it wasn't just her physical symptom. She was restored to community. Now, the Bible doesn't go into how this affects them emotionally, but you gotta, you got to know that if you were estranged from community for 12 years, think if you were living, isolated, alienated from other people for, for just a few years, and all of a sudden you're welcomed back in, you're healed. Think of what that would do to you. You know, the word Jesus actually means God is salvation. That's a, that's a cool name. Jesus means God is salvation. But you know what? The, the biblical concept of salvation, we've tended to make it in our modern Christian world, we, we tend to make it that God, the only, in, the only thing God is interested in your life is your soul, this little nugget inside you somewhere that you, you can't see with a CAT scan or anything, but that's the only thing God really cares about is your soul and making sure your, your soul goes to heaven when you die. But the biblical concept of salvation isn't just your soul. It's your body. It's your, your, your emotions. It's your, you as a whole person. I, I actually heard uh, one theologian put it this way. Heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. The end of everything is not that we all go to heaven when we die. If you read the end of the book of Revelation, heaven comes here. The, the new heavens and the new earth, and guess what? We're resurrected into new life. In the end of this thing, we're not going to be spirits floating around on clouds playing harps with angel wings looking all cute. In the end of this thing, God's going to give us resurrection life. We'll have new bodies. How many of y'all thankful for that? <laughs> God is going to, at the end of this thing, we'll be completely put back together the way God wanted us to. The salvation begins at a spiritual level, but it's completely working out until God has his way, completely. So we have to understand that what God is doing here is, is he's putting us back together. It begins with responding to God for the first time and saying yes to Jesus. It begins with saying, God, I'm going to follow you. But it's always working out, not just, uh, not just in, a, in kind of a spiritual box where you just do spiritual activities, but it starts touching your emotions and your relationships. And sometimes, sometimes we're even healed physically. I know this is a message in our series on prayer, and, and I haven't talked about prayer yet. So let's get to a scripture about prayer here. James five, thirteen through 16. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. James starts off this passage talking about praying for people to be healed. And, and we believe in that here. 
I know there's some churches that don't, don't believe that God actually heals you today, but, but we believe that here. Actually, the last few weeks, you know, we, we have people that stay after, and we'll, we'll pray for them. And we prayed for a few people to be healed and that God would, would, would restore them because we believe what James says. But it's interesting. James starts by talking about praying for sick people, people who are physically sick. But then where does he end up? He ends up at confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you will be healed. How many of y'all grew up Catholic in here? Wow. That's like half the church. See, I did not grow up Catholic. I, I led worship one time in a Catholic church in Morgan City, and I was like a bull in a china closet. It was, it was a mess. I was breaking all the rules. I didn't know what you're supposed to do. And I was getting looks from the priest because I sang the songs out of the wrong order. And uh, I just had no grid for it. <laughs> now, I do, I, there's some of my favorite authors are Catholics. I, I've, I, I enjoy, hey, do you need anything? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've got some of my favorite authors are Catholic authors, but I, I, I'm pretty much an outsider to Catholicism. I've, I've probably encountered more since I've lived in Louisiana than I did growing up. But so if, if I get this, picture of Catholicism wrong, tell me. But in Catholicism, as observed on TV shows and uh, movies, <laughs> uh, they have this thing called confessional. Anybody been to confession before? Okay, well, as far as I can tell, this is the way it works. You have this thing, that, this confessional booth that you show up to anonymously, and the priest is, is hidden behind a screen, so everything's kind of anonymous. You go in there, and he asks you when the last time you confessed was, and, and then you tell him, you know, it's been three years, and uh, no. Uh, then you go in there, and you confess your sins to him, and then at the end, he may tell you a couple of things you need to do, like pray the rosary prayer a few times or whatever, and, and then send you on your way, and you're, you're, you're free of your sins. Is that right? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think that's what James is talking about here. James isn't saying, go confess your sins to a a priest. He's saying, confess your sins to one another. (laughs) Confess your sins to one another. Who qualifies for that? All of us. Right answer. Y'all are a sharp group this morning. Is it the coffee? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, 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 told, I mentioned this at our, our newcomers class a, a few months ago. Somebody asked kind of the difference between me being a pastor or a priest. And I said, well, I'm not a priest because a, a priest, the typical understanding of a priest is that a priest is a mediator between you and God. So if, you know, you don't think you can go to God yourself, so you go to the priest and say, hey, man, can you tell God uh, that I need this prayer answered? I, I'm a pastor, and what I, the way I view a pastor is I'm here to help you into the spiritual life and, and so that you can be everything that God intended you to be so that you can go to God, so that you can, and, and, and I think if I'm doing my job, then ultimately you won't be coming to me all the time confessing your sins. You'll be confessing them to one another and praying for one another. I know... Uh, the idea of confessing your sins to an anonymous person, that's appealing to us, isn't it? We, we kind of like to deal with things where nobody has to know what we're going through, right? Uh, 
Anybody else like that? Or is it just me? If you're going through something, especially something that you're ashamed of, you just don't want to tell anybody else, right? My first few years as a Christian, first several years, I, I, I kind of thought that when I said yes to Jesus that all of a sudden I wouldn't have any more struggles anymore. Like, I'd have the Holy Spirit, and then all of a sudden, no more problems. But I realized very quickly, it didn't take more than about a month or two to realize that I still had struggles with lust and anger and pride and jealousy. I, I, I was still a mess. I was still very insecure. <laughs> and... I knew I had these issues, and I had no problem confessing these issues to God, but I was afraid to confess them to anybody else, because if anybody else knew what was going on, either they'd look down on me, or they'd completely reject me. And honestly, I can tell you, those first few years as a Christian, I never saw any Christians who ever confessed anything. I was not around churches where it was common for people to admit what they were going for and pray for you. So I went on ashamed of what I was dealing with for years and years. You know, Psalm 32, David writes about a similar struggle. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That's a picture of of where I was. It's like my bones were wasting away on the inside. I was just, ah, groaning on the inside. I I wanted God. I had no problem with telling God what was wrong, but I was so afraid that if anybody knew what I was struggling with, they they wouldn't let me in church. They'd put me on a blacklist. They'd say, ah, check. He can't come around here. And I remember the church I was at at the time, I'd go up weekly they, they would often close with a, an altar call, which is, you know, where they would have the band keep playing, and, and you could just go up there and pray. And, and I would pray every week, God, take this stuff away from me. Change me. Make me different. And nothing would happen. I believe that's because my healing actually had to do with confessing my sins, not to God, but other people. And that was the last thing on earth that I wanted to do. It took me years, but I finally got to a place where I could be open and honest with people and they could pray for me. Now, it took me a long time because it took me a long time to find anybody that was safe to even share things with, okay? What I'm talking about today doesn't mean like you just met somebody today you think's pretty cool at the coffee, so I'm just gonna unload everything I'm struggling with. And You might not want to do that. I can't vouch for everybody in here. <laughs> But my journey to healing was tied up in my relationships with other people. I had to get to a point where I could confess my sins to other people and pray and and get their prayer. You know, if you ever go to Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this thing called the 12-step program. The first step is this. We We admitted we were powerless over our addiction that our lives had become unmanageable. That's the first step. Like, you can't go over to the, to the rest of the steps in recovery if you don't get that step right. But it's not just admitting this to yourself, although that's, that's key. If you don't admit it to yourself, you're not going to admit it to anybody else. But entire AA meetings are people admitting, 
I'm out of control. I can't do this anymore. My life is a mess. I can't go a day without drinking alcohol. I'm a mess. My life is completely out of control. If you can't admit that to somebody else about your sin, about what's going on in your heart, you are never going to take the steps to healing, to freedom that God wants you. God, part of our healing, part of our freedom, part of what God intends for us, becoming the people that he's made us to be, is locked up in our relationships with other people. Dr. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist uh, and author of a lot of good books, he, he wrote this. He said, I am radically pro-community. I believe that the t- terms of God's new covenant with humankind that under the terms of God's new covenant with humankind, the Holy Spirit has graciously placed resources in every Christian that when released from one person and received into another can promote substantial healing and change. A connecting community where each member is joined together in dynamic spiritual union is a healing community. A healing community. Those are some great words for a church, huh? I would love... And I believe I'm starting to see this happen here, honestly. But I'd love that to be our reputation as North Shore Vineyard. That, that people don't just say, wow, the coffee is really awesome over there. <laughs> or that we don't just have a reputation for a church that's cram-packed inside a room, a crazy small space. But that people could say, I encountered God. And God started dealing with stuff in my heart. When I got around those people, those people seem to be open and authentic and they're willing to help each other out. You know, back in the, back in the spring, back when our church was probably about 20 people, we going up to Easter, we did this thing called 40 days of faith. And I asked folks if, if, if they could to find two or three other people that they could meet with on a weekly basis. We call these tie groups, or three is enough groups. No more than four people. It's okay to have four people, but I just said, get with, get with two or three other people once a week for the next 40 days, and just process what God's doing in your life. Talk about what God's doing and pray for one another. It's real simple. There's no leader. As long as you have less than four, you know, four people or less, you don't have to have a leader or anything. And we did that. But you know what? At the end of the 40 days, I kept meeting with my guys, <laughs> and actually, there's a few groups that have kept, have kept meeting this whole time. And every week, now sometimes we miss a few weeks because of scheduling issues, because everybody's got stuff, but we consistently return to meeting together. We meet together every Tuesday. And you know what we do? It's not a Bible study. We don't have a book that we're going through. This is what it, this is what it looks like. We sit down in here and just talk about what's going on in our life. Man, this is, this, I had a hard day at the office. Man, you, this is a situation with so-and-so, and this is what I'm going through. So we'll share our, our, our situations for 30 minutes or so, and then we just pray for each other. That's it. But I've found in making a priority in my life to have other people involved in my life, it's made all the difference in the world. I got to tell you, ever since that first time I opened my mouth and shared my struggles with some other brothers in the Lord, I'm ruined. I'm ruined for anything else. I really am. Because I know if I don't have that in my life, I know left up to my own devices, man, I will do stupid, stupid things. (laughs) I don't put anything past me. I really don't. I know my track record. 
I know alone trying to do my spiritual journey, I'm no good. I got to have people in my life in authentic, honest relationships with that I can just say, hey, I'm going through something. You know, this last week, I got to tell you, I don't know if this is just a, a they, they warned me. I, for those of you that don't know, I, I had a heart attack about six weeks ago and, and had some uh, issues there. And they told me when I was leaving, they said that I would likely go through some depression at some point and because that typically happens with folks that go through that and I was like okay whatever well boy Monday I'm (laughs) I'm a mess I was I was just in in one of these places where I was just like feeling overwhelmed feeling bummed out I'm up at the gym on the elliptical machine and I'm listening to a blues musician right he starts singing I just start crying on the elliptical machine I'm like (laughs) least people could think it was sweat, you know, and so I was like, I had my towel, I'm like, I'm like, God, I'm a mess, and I can tell you, years ago, I'd have just been a mess, and I'd probably just gone in a downward spiral, but there's a couple of people that I talked to over the next day or two, people that I called, and I just said, man, I, 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 I'm, I don't know what's going on, but I'm having a problem here. There was a time in my life where I would have been too proud to share that I broke down crying on an elliptical machine. <laughs> Some of y'all were going, I wish you'd be a little too proud to share that now. Um, <laughs> but you know, now I've, I've learned that I've got to be honest with people. I need people who know what's going on in my life. They know what, what struggles are going on. Not just the struggles. They need to know the joys, everything. But that I need to live my life in that way. And I can't go back. I know... Some of you in here today, you, you may think, wow, that sounds really great, but I don't have anybody in my life that I could tell anything. I, nobody. Well, let me n- let you know this. I know how you feel. When, when I went to this retreat years ago and had this amazing breakthrough where I opened up about things I was struggling with, my small group leader at the end of that week, he, he said, uh, so do you have anybody back in Kenner that you can continue this stuff with? And all of a sudden, a light bulb went off and I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I've been on staff at a church for over a year, and I got no relationships of depth with anybody that I feel like comfortable talking about any of this stuff. There's a problem. I realized that in the years before I came to Kinder Vineyard, I had this band, and we traveled around. We led worship at churches around the United States, and we were tight community. I mean, we were praying with each other all the time, but when I, when I came on staff there, we, you know, we didn't go to that church before I came on staff. So I, I, was, I was starting to, I never got to sit out in the church. I was always up on stage and I never got to know anybody. And it was a miserable place to be. And so when I came back to Kenner, you know, my small group leader up in Colorado, he said, well, I'm just going to pray for you that, that God will show you somebody. And I was like, I need it. <laughs> and so we started praying. Came back to Kenner. It took me six months before God really answered that prayer. But he did, and he finally brought some people into my life that that I could do life with. And i got to tell you, since then, I have not lived in isolation. I've not done go-it-alone Christianity, and I'm not going back to that. My wife won't let me. She likes me better. I'm a better person. (laughs) So if you're here today and you think, man, I would love somebody I could share my journey with, but there's nobody. I I can't even think of, of, you know, a runner-up 
candidate. <laughs> Third runner-up. All I can say is begin to pray for that. And God will hear your prayers. If you think this is a real, if, if this is you today, if you're, you're very much in isolation in your journey and you just nobody knows what's going on, pray that God will open that up. Don't just unload on somebody today. I mentioned during announcements that this is the last week of our s- summer small groups. So some of you are kind of bummed. You're like, oh, man, I, I'd love to start getting involved in community now, but it's going to be over. Well, the reason I did that is because I'm trying not to burn everybody out here. We're going to be doing Alpha in the fall, uh, starting in October. But I encourage you, these three is enough groups. They're pretty easy to get going. You don't need a whole lot of instruction. All you got to do is just find two or three other people and just say, hey, can we get together for coffee once a week? There's a group of guys on the South Shore that get together for lunch once a week in Metairie. It works really good with geography. If you're stay-at-home moms living in Mandeville, you can maybe invite two, two moms over to your house. And, and maybe between an hour, you'll get 15 minutes of talking to each other. <laughs> Everybody can come packing Benadryl. And, uh, bad pastor, bad pastor. Uh, <laughs> But I'm telling you, when James talks about confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another that we should be healed, I think this is one of the most neglected things in the church nowadays in the United States. We miss it. And you know what? We're getting ripped off on our Christian experience. You want to know why a lot of your Christian experience doesn't walk? If you're trying to do it all by yourself with God, or if you just keep everybody at a surface distance, that's why it's not working. Well, that's one of the problems. (laughs) God has created us to be in right relationship with one another, to confess our sins, to pray for one another. Why don't you guys stand, and, and I'll just close this with a word of prayer. Lord, I know, I know in this room this morning In a gathering this size, I know there are people struggling with all kinds of things. They're terrified of sharing with other people. Maybe eating disorders. Maybe with thoughts of wanting to leave their spouse. Maybe with addictions to pornography. Maybe with just anxiety. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to grace us. Give us the grace to overcome our own fears and our own pride. Lord, give us the boldness to step out of our comfort zone and to live in authentic community. God, I know the, the first step is the most terrifying step. It feels like everything could be lost. But I pray that you would create a community of people here at the North Shore Vineyard who are sincerely in authentic, open relationship. That we are a community of healing. Lord, where those who are just banged up on the inside can come and and be transformed, be changed. Or that we could 
be vessels of your healing. And Lord, I pray for every person here this morning that, that doesn't have anybody in their life who feels cut off, who just needs that, Lord, that doesn't even know where that would happen, God, that you would answer those cries, God, you would open up the doors, you would bring people into that person's life. Lord, for those who are experiencing that, God, you would just help us not to get distracted from that. God, help us to see that as the priority that it needs to be in our lives, God. Help us not to overschedule our times and, and just lose, lose our connection time with one another because of all the other important things in life. But help us, Lord, to see that that is of utmost importance in our spiritual journey, God. Help us to realign our priorities Let's do your work, Lord. Bring us together, Lord. Let your healing come to our hearts, Lord, and our bodies and our minds and our relationships, God. Let your healing come. Put us back together, Lord. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like some specific prayer for something this morning, we'll, we'll have some people up here. Uh, we're going to clear out the chairs. You know, that's what we do at the end of the service so you can hang around and talk. But uh, if anybody needs some prayer, just hang on for a few minutes and you can come up to the front. We'll be glad to get with you here in a minute and, and pray for you. God bless you all.